0: Part of me was very scared, and part of me was really excited. It was an equal, equal balance. And I'm like, no, it's there. Like, if there's a line at all, it means you're pregnant.
1: You know, and it's so opposite from the ovulation test because there's always a line on that one, but it has to be darker. And then now this one, it's like, doesn't matter how dark the line is. Like,
2: we're pregnant. I think right before I got pregnant, it would have seemed like just that it would feel like such a sacrifice to organize my life in that way. And it's amazing how it really just has it. I mean, it's just become, this is kind of what I want to do.
3: Lauren, Stacy, and Cora are all pregnant for the first time. And each of them has a different story to tell, not just because every pregnant woman is unique, but because each of these women received a different medical label from doctors. Lauren is experiencing what obstetricians call a geriatric pregnancy, despite the fact that she's only in her late 30s. But in the obstetric world, that's old, and at least in the U.S., it gets you placed in a high-risk category. Stacy had trouble getting pregnant and was eventually diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Like a so-called geriatric pregnancy, a pregnancy after infertility puts a woman in a high-risk category. Cora is only 27, and she became pregnant easily and has had a largely trouble-free pregnancy. But she quickly learned that even low-risk pregnancies are subjected to medical scrutiny that can make even the most normal pregnancy seem worthy of a lot of worry. Lauren, our supposedly old mom, tells her story first.
0: When I found out I was pregnant, it was not the reaction that I thought I would have. I thought I would be overjoyed and crying and all excited because this is what I wanted. And I had been trying and, you know, I just kind of sat in silence by myself in the bathroom. And I thought, okay, this is happening now. I put the test back in the wrapper I came back to bed. I put the test in my nightstand drawer and I went back to sleep.
3: You didn't tell your husband?
0: I didn't tell my husband at all. He was still asleep and he is not very, um, he's not his normal self in the morning. He's usually very lighthearted and caring and loving. And in the morning, he is a grumpy growl o' bear. So I thought this isn't the right time. I had been in a car accident years ago, and and it kind of felt like that. Like, okay, this is happening. This is a huge life change. This is something important. I'm I'm going to just sit with it. And I got really calm. And so later that morning, my husband got up, went and got coffee and donuts, and he's sitting watching TV. I get myself out of bed, and I think, you know what? I'm going to take another test. We'll just see. Took another one, same result. <laughs> Came downstairs, and I just placed them in front of him. I had planned all of these wonderful ways to tell him that I was pregnant in my head, and I just totally put it right in front of his face and said, "This is happening now." <laughs> and bless his heart, he just—I—he I, didn't even cry at our wedding. But he just welled up with tears, and he was so happy. And I think that's when it hit me, and I started crying too.
3: By the time Lauren was pregnant, most of her friends had already had children. She was in what she called Group B. So she had heard a lot of pregnancy stories.
0: You hear of people that you love dearly who are having so many problems or who have had multiple miscarriages. And so I got very scared. that that was going to be me. So when we went for the first ultrasound, I wasn't excited. I didn't enjoy going to the doctor's office. And every time it turned out to be okay, I just a sense of relief and a rush of just sigh of relief. Okay, everything's all right. Now, because I am a geriatric pregnancy, you have multiple ultrasounds, which for me is really helpful. (laughs) Let let me interrupt you for a minute because, you know, I have
3: to laugh. I, too, was a geriatric pregnancy. I have one daughter, and I was pregnant um, when I was 38. And to me, this is an oxymoron because you can't be pregnant and be geriatric. I mean, geriatric really (laughs) means old. But yes, when once you hit 35, as far as medicine is concerned, you have a label. And that medical label creates a lot of worries for women. That's one reason that Lauren was so comforted by ultrasounds.
0: Yes, I love ultrasounds. <laughs> I love going, I love knowing every month that she's okay, that she's growing on on chart, that everything's going to be all right. I want to know everything about it.
3: You um, use the pronoun she, so I take it that you know the gender of your baby.
0: Yes, it's a girl. Because of a geriatric pregnancy, I got to do a blood test very early on. And so they take a, a sample of your blood and along with your blood is your fetus's blood. And so they can pull that apart and separate it to figure out what's going on with you and what's going on with them.
3: This is a fairly recent discovery that they learned that fetal DNA circulates in the maternal blood supply. So what you're describing is a non-invasive prenatal diagnosis test that was not possible um, too many years ago.
0: Trying to get that test result is another source of worry. And the older you get, the more likely that there might be an issue.
3: Usually, the issue is Down syndrome because that's yes. that's what increases with age. I think it's one in thirty-five hundred births when you're under twenty-five might be Down syndrome, and then when you're thirty-five, it's one in three hundred and fifty births might be Down syndrome. So it's still very unlikely, but it gets it increases in likelihood the older you get. After her blood test, Lauren asked her physician to write the fetus's gender on a post-it note and mail it to her. And after she received the envelope in the mail, she gave the sealed envelope to a friend for safekeeping.
0: We wanted to do, you know, one of those big reveals that are so popular now. And I thought, you know, there's been so much worry and there's been so much kind of uncertainty and and a little bit of hesitation about this pregnancy that I really want to celebrate this because I think this will be really fun. And I wanted to know and my husband wanted to know. So we were gonna go with my parents to North Carolina to the beach and we bought these powder cannons that were gonna shoot off this smoke, either a pink or as a girl or blue as a boy. And we wanted it to be a surprise to us.
3: And that's why she gave the sealed envelope to her close and trusted friend, Leah.
0: She contacted the company who sent me the right color of powder cannon. Shipped it to North Carolina, and I started a countdown clock on my phone. I needed something to look forward to. So it was down to the minute of when we were going to be there, when we were going to be on the beach, and when we were going to shoot those things off. And we get there, and we twist them, and they poof up, and they're bright pink, and I immediately lose it. I had not cried since the day we found out I was pregnant. I had not been super emotional about it, but all of a sudden, tears welled up into my face and I just started uncontrollably crying. I was so happy that it was a girl. I don't know why. We found out it was a girl, and now it just seems like you have more of a connection. I, I feel more connected to her through the ultrasounds. It's almost like seeing an old friend that you're with all the time. <laughs> seeing her wiggle and move and, and just being you know, content in there, it, you just feel more connected. I get to observe her growth from week to week, (laughs) I feel like seeing her makes it more real. I went and I did a 3D and 4D and HD ultrasound. And during that ultrasound, you literally see what their face looks like. It is one of the most amazing and slightly unnerving things (laughs) that you can go through. It looks like a photograph of your born baby inside of you.
3: When is your baby due?
0: Well, the first um, due date is February 3rd. But because of my geriatric pregnancy and my chronic high blood pressure they are going to induce me two weeks early. So she will be induced January 21st or 22nd at 38 weeks.
3: Lauren's doctor insisted on inducing her labor two weeks early because, in Lauren's words, the placenta doesn't like to be pregnant for too long when you have high blood pressure. It will start pulling away from the uterine wall. So it wasn't Lauren's age, but her chronic high blood pressure that had her doctor wanting to induce labor so early.
0: I am one of those people that just trusts any medical professional that they know more than I do. So I just do whatever they tell me to do. <laughs> I never felt like I had a voice to say, no, I don't want to do that. Or wait, can you explain that further to me? I just said, okay, well, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> whatever you think is best.
3: You know, a lot of what you've been describing in addition to the wonder and the joy is a series of worries, First, you're worried that you're not getting pregnant. Then when you are pregnant, you're worried you might miscarry. Yes.
0: (laughs) And I don't know why. Just yesterday, I did the glucose test. And of course, all day long, I'm thinking, well, of course, I'm going to have gestational diabetes. So I, I take my, you know, glucose, and I go in and I get my blood taken. And they said, we'll call you tomorrow. And they didn't call me. So I called them said, did you get the results back? And everything's fine. No gestational diabetes, no anemia, and my iron levels are great. So I don't know why I continue to worry.
3: But the exams and tests pregnant women undergo imply there could easily be problems, and that implication sparks worry. That and American women rarely have more than one or two children these days, and so the stakes seem high with each of the few pregnancies women do have. And Lauren confirms that's on her mind.
0: And so this one is the most important one because it could be the only one.
3: (laughs) Lauren's cousin has urged her to think about declining the induction at 38 weeks if she gets to that point and still wants more time.
0: Well, my cousin, she's actually a labor and delivery nurse now in Columbus. So I've been kind of bouncing all of these things off of her, you know, trying to see what she thinks. And she said, you know, if you feel comfortable, you feel like you want to wait a week, you tell them, I want to wait a week.
3: She's absolutely
0: right. And to me, I was like, oh, no, no, I can't tell them that. Like, giving them the ownership of my own baby's birth.
3: (laughs) I'm glad your cousin empowered you to say, you know, let's wait a few days. That's that is absolutely your right.
0: Yeah, just getting that permission is is so is it's like, oh yeah, you're right. I don't have to do this. You know, I've always been a rule follower, and if somebody has more authority than I do, I'm like, Okay. <laughs> we'll do what you say. You obviously know better than I do. I've never done this before. Lauren,
3: due to her age and chronic high blood pressure, received even more medical monitoring than usual for an American pregnancy. Now we'll hear from Stacy. Remember, she had a tough time getting pregnant.
1: I've always dreamt of being pregnant and having kids. So, you know, my husband Andy and I have been together since high school. So once we got married, I was like, okay, let's start trying right away. And he was more like, no, let's hold off until we know like we're financially stable. And so after about a year of being married, we finally decided, okay, we'll just kind of see what happens nothing was happening and so then I started talking with some of my friends about you know their journeys to being pregnant because almost all of my friends had kids already. They gave me some tips about you know like using like ovulation kits and things like that. So we started doing that and after about a year of trying nothing happened still. So for me I was very like Emotionally having a hard time. I mean, every month that we would get a negative pregnancy test, I would just kind of be depressed, or I'd call my mom and just like cry to my mom. And so it was really hard on me. My husband was more like the one that was just like, there for me, it's going to happen. You know, he was kind of the rock in the whole thing, which was really great. And so after about a year, I decided just to bring it up to my OBGYN. And he ordered just blood work for me um, to check hormones and he also did blood work to see if I was ovulating. And then he had ordered for my husband to go get a semen analysis done. All of that came back great. So everything came back fine, so we didn't know what was going on.
3: So Stacy's obstetrician sent her to her fertility specialist, and the specialist started from square one with his own testing.
1: They did more blood work. They checked like my fallopian tubes to make sure everything was okay there. Um, they kind of gave my husband ideas of like vitamins he could take that could help him even though everything was fine. I mean, I went like almost every other week for blood work, I went by myself for the testing for the fallopian tubes because it was, you know, a work day. My husband couldn't take off any more work. And you kind of get to the point where you feel bad asking, like, your mom to always come with you or take off work as well. So I was like, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to go in. I'm going to do it. You know, I was fine, but I was nervous.
3: Stacey describes one of the tests that are part of a complete female infertility workup, a hysterosalpingogram. A physician injects dye through the cervical opening into the uterus, and then the dye goes through the fallopian tubes to make sure there's no blockage.
1: And I actually ended up crying when I was just laying there as they were doing it, because you hype yourself up, like, getting so nervous about it. And it's just, I mean, it is invasive and then your whole body starts to cramp because they're injecting dye where it technically isn't supposed to be. While you're getting all these cramps, they make you turn from side to side to make sure that the dye goes through your fallopian tubes. So for me, that was probably one of the hardest tests I had to do. I mean, you're uncomfortable. You don't know anyone in the room and you're in like, you know, like an x-ray radiation, like cold room. And it was just I think a lot of it was nerves, too. You know, you get nervous just doing it. And then we finally kind of came to the conclusion that I actually had PCOS.
3: Doctors had diagnosed Stacey with polycystic ovarian syndrome, usually shorthanded as PCOS.
1: My sister actually has it as well, which I found kind of interesting that both of us kind of struggled with infertility. and I kind of knew a little bit about it already.
3: PCOS is a hormonal disorder with an array of symptoms. Not all the symptoms manifest in all women with PCOS. Some just have a few signs of the syndrome. In Stacy's case, doctors told her that she wasn't ovulating. And because she wasn't ovulating, cysts, that is, extra follicles, were appearing on her ovaries. Now that she had a diagnosis, she needed treatment. And that is when the quirks of the complicated U.S. healthcare care system came into play.
1: The doctor's recommendation was going straight to IUI, which was intrauterine insemination. But I was on my husband's insurance, and his insurance covers no fertility treatment whatsoever. And so we were like, well, you know, that would be like $1,500 out of pocket, depending on how many ultrasounds we need. And we're like, we just can't do that right now. And I knew that my insurance through my employer covers fertility treatments because I had a coworker that went through fertility treatment. So we were about three months away from open enrollment. So I decided, okay, I'll go on my insurance because who knows, you know, if IUI will work, do we have to do IVF? Like how far are we going to have to go? So I requested to go on my insurance and I talked to the doctor and I was like, but is there anything we can do in the three months we're waiting so that we're at least trying to help? ourselves. So he told me I could do three months of taking just a pill called Letrozole, which is actually used a lot for women with breast cancer. And I guess the research shows that it can be um, used for women with PCOS to help them ovulate. So we decided to go ahead and try that for three months while we were waiting to start IUI. And um, the first two months, nothing happened. So the third month, I was kind of like, oh, well, should I try it? Should I not? And the nurse was like, just, you know, just try it. So they gave us with this medication a 4% chance of conceiving.
3: Stacey was 28 at the time, and doctors reassured her by reminding her that she was young. Time was on her side. But it turned out she didn't need more time.
1: And on the third month, when we were about to go in for our IUI consult, we actually found out we were pregnant.
3: Did you do a home pregnancy test and find out that way that you were pregnant?
1: I did. It was funny. I remember because we were going out for our anniversary, and I remember I was cramping, and I just felt like all the classic symptoms that like your period is coming. And I kind of just looked at my husband. and I was like, I'm really sorry. Like, I think we're just, we're out this month. And I was like crying and I was just like, it's not happening. And so I remember I was just, I was defeated. I was, this isn't happening. This month is done. But I still was like, I'm going to take a test. I'm just going to make sure because I just had to know for sure that it was a no. So I woke up for work and it was the exact two week mark that I could take the test. I took the test and it was super, super faint, but it was there And I remember I didn't know what to think. And when I used to think about the day that I would get a positive test, I could only imagine, like, how excited I would be, how, like, you know, what I would feel. And I was kind of just like, is it real or is it not? And so I woke up, you know, my husband, and I was like, you got to see this. And he was just kind of like, I don't know, Stace, I, I don't really see it. And I think for both of us, we just didn't believe it after going through, like, Two years of negative tests, you finally get a light line and you're just like, I don't think so. We called the doctor and then the next, it was a Friday. So Monday, we waited all weekend. Monday, we went in for a blood test or I went in for a blood test. And they called back that afternoon and let us know that it was true, like you're pregnant they are also very hesitant when they tell you. And then you have to go in every other day for three days and get more blood work to make sure, like, your levels are doubling to make sure, like, the pregnancy is, like, sticking. And so it wasn't until after those three tests that we finally let ourselves, like, believe that we were actually pregnant. And I still feel like even those first few weeks, then we went for an ultrasound at four weeks. And I don't think it was until, like, 12 weeks when we actually heard the heartbeat that we were finding, like, okay, this is real, like, we're pregnant.
3: When you go through a struggle with infertility, it kind of dampens the joy of finding out you're pregnant because you become very wary of how things are going to go just because things didn't go very well in the beginning.
1: It was really hard to go through, but I feel like for us, I feel like, you know, it did bring us closer. You know, we worked through it together. And then I, I can't imagine going through it when you are older and then you have more factors weighing in on the infertility as well.
2: Did you
3: share this news with very many people or or were you kind of keeping it, you and Andy were keeping it to yourselves?
1: So we told our parents around six or seven weeks. We were very open about our journey and that we were struggling with infertility. So With that comes a lot of questions. And I liked being open about it and I didn't mind people asking me about it because I feel like a lot of women have a hard time sharing about it and we don't hear about it a lot. But I tried to be very open and so we did end up telling just our family early, like our parents and then our siblings and then we waited for everybody else until the 12 weeks when we heard the heartbeat. My husband, Andy, is super supportive, but I feel like guys are so different in the way that they, like, express their feelings and stuff. And so, not that he wasn't there for me because he was, but I felt like we were dealing with it in two totally different ways. And so, sharing it with, like, my friends and family helped me emotionally. I found out so many more people that went through it that were, like... Even if nothing worked for them, or they had to even go further, at least like they were like, "Hey, I remember that. I know how you're feeling," and that just helped a
3: lot. How far are you along right now? I'll be thirty one weeks tomorrow. At what point do you feel like that you can really be happy and celebrate this?
1: Once I heard the heartbeat at twelve weeks, I felt like I was finally like super excited like this is really happening. This is real." and really started to enjoy the fact that I was pregnant. And that's about the time where I was like, you can tell people, you know, you're kind of over that hump where the miscarriage rate is a little bit less. And I was starting to feel it. So I was really sick and had, you know, the morning sickness and everything. So then everything is really like full blown, like, yeah, you're actually pregnant. (laughs) And, um, when we started telling our friends and went back to work and was telling my coworkers, I felt like that really made it real for me and more exciting at that
3: point. Talk about the moment when you first realized you could feel the baby move around.
1: It actually took a while. So I have a scar in my stomach from a previous surgery when I was twelve. My appendix ruptured, and I didn't know, so I have a huge scar in my stomach. So with that, I also have an anterior placenta. So the placenta is in the front instead of like where it normally would be in the back, I guess. My doctor was like, oh, you're not going to, you know, feel the baby as much or as early as some women would, because basically those layers are acting as like a pillow when your baby's kicking. I didn't feel the baby kick until maybe like a real kick until like, 28 weeks, maybe, 29 weeks, a few weeks ago. But now I feel it all the time. And I mean, even just like laying in bed last night, that's when I feel it a lot.
3: Normally, women first feel fetal movement at 19 or 20 weeks.
1: And it's just crazy because you're just wondering like what they're doing in there. But um, for my husband to feel it, that was exciting. And he could finally feel it. It's finally getting to the point where it's kicking or moving hard enough that you can feel it. Um, like on the outside, which is really cool. I'm just trying to embrace all of it as we go and so, like even right now, like I'm so excited for the birth and like to know because we don't know what we're having so I'm so excited to find out if it's a girl or a boy, but I'm also really trying just to enjoy the last few weeks that we
3: have. Talk a little bit about that decision too, the decision not to find out what the gender of the baby is.
1: First, was my husband he was just like you know there's not many surprises in life so this can be something that we can make a surprise for ourselves and I kind of just thought about that and it's so true like this is one thing that we can decide together that we don't want to find out but I just love the idea of us you know giving birth and then I know like our parents will be there and just being in like my sister and stuff and just being able to like have my husband go out and tell everybody like it's a boy or it's a girl and just being able to call everyone. I just like
3: that. I didn't know the gender of my child and it was and I was sure I was gonna have a boy. I mean I assumed the entire pregnancy I was I have, <laughs> I have three brothers, so I just thought, you know, babies are boys. That was always my experience mm-hmm. as a kid. And it was an amazing when the doctor said, nope, it's a girl And now we're going to hear from Cora. She had no trouble getting pregnant, she's only 27, but even she learned that just discussing with your gynecologist the desire to get pregnant can quickly become a discussion of everything that can go wrong with not just pregnancy, but even conception.
2: I think psychologically the journey of pregnancy started the day that we started trying, which was the day that I got my IUD removed. And so the day itself felt like a real milestone. I mean, even though it was a gynecology appointment, it really felt like sort of this juncture in my life, a before and after, I guess almost like a gunshot going off before the race, like this sort of official start to something. And I, I think I expected that that would be reflected um, w- in my interactions with the doctor, um, that when I told her, you know, this is it, I'm getting my AUD out, um, that there would be some kind of congratulations or just a recognition of that milestone. But that's not what happened at all. Instead, I mean, she immediately launches into, you know, she said well, you need to be on vitamins for three months before you get pregnant. So you'll need to continue to use condoms for that amount of time. Um, It's standard now that we um, do a genetic test to test you for all of these recessive diseases that you might have, including Tay-Sachs, cystic fibrosis, over 400 different diseases that are tested for. And I, I mean, by this point, it's like 30 seconds after I told her and I'm already spinning. I said, you know, well, what If I have one of them, am I not supposed to conceive? And she said, no, you know, then we would get your husband tested. If he's positive for the same ones that you are, then we can do embryo selection. Again, a minute after I eagerly announced this to her, I'm already thinking, like, what if I have a baby that has this horrible recessive disease? Or, like, what if I have to go down this really expensive
3: road? Did she explain why you need to take vitamins for three months?
2: No. And I mean, that was something I had never considered doing, Um, had never heard of. I mean, it was like assuming I was just like horribly deficient to begin with. Did not ask me if there were any recessives manifested in my family. I mean, this was just her spiel to anybody, I guess, that comes in trying to get pregnant. She gave me a packet called How to Get Pregnant that was like six pages long. It talked about when to have sex, when not to have sex so that the sperm builds up, what positions to lie in before and after, how long to lie in them. So it was just very much this understanding that this is, you know, a medical endeavor. It's very complicated. You really have to know how to do it. Um, You have to prepare adequately. I mean it happened so fast and it really just seemed like this is all the expectation that you go through with all of these procedures. I got my blood taken. As soon as I left, I regretted it. I cried in the car on the way home. I I felt so different walking out of there than I did when I was walking in. Just that this was like this insurmountable complicated thing that I wouldn't be able to do right. I mean, obviously, like, I don't feel the anxiety anymore, but it just, like, enrages me that that's how it started. Because it really, like, I mean, it has been a milestone. It's been, like, this wonderful, cool thing. um, And I really resent that that was my first impression of it.
3: Let me confess at this point. Cora is my daughter. She's pregnant with my grandson. And as most of the listeners of Lifespan know, I'm a historian of medicine. Specifically, I've spent my entire academic career researching the history of birth and breastfeeding practices in the United States, and much of that research is focused on how the medical community has pathologized birth and breastfeeding and how that has affected public health. But not until I heard the story of my daughter's gynecology appointment did I realize that we've now managed to pathologize conception. After Cora left the gynecology appointment she just described, she called me crying, And after explaining between sobs what just had happened, she asked me, do I really need to do all this? I responded in one sentence. The only thing you have to do is find another doctor. Cora did something even better. She found a midwife. But the gynecologist kept trying to call her to give her the results of the genetic test, the test that she had been intimidated into taking.
2: And I actually dodged their calls for a month afterwards because I so did not want to know what random recessive genes I was carrying.
3: She'd felt railroaded into giving her blood for the genetic test. Now she wanted to take back control by not getting the results of the test.
2: Now I'm connected with the birthing center, and they're very, like, I've heard sort of what the conversation should sound like of, you know, these are the pros and cons. Um, this is what you could get out of it. This is the risk of false positives, things like that. This is how much it costs. And so, yes, I dodged their calls for a month because I really didn't want to know. And then at some point I sort of had this thought, like, what if they're trying to call me because I have cancer or, like, they discovered something awful that I really need to know. So I called them back, and I had two really, really rare – genetic markers that are like kind of more common in Ashkenazi Jews which you know I'm 100% Ashkenazi Jew so like of course I have a couple recessives in there somewhere um and I haven't gone any farther with it. I never got my husband tested. I mean, he's three-quarters wasp, so I think the chances of us carrying the same thing are very very low. Um, and even if we did, the chances of the kid manifesting it are 25%. And honestly, I mean, it was something that loomed large to me then. And ne- since I've gotten pregnant, I really haven't thought about it. It's not really a worry of mine, but I still wish that I didn't know it. <laughs>
3: After the encounter with her gynecologist, Cora found a group of midwives who provide pre- and postnatal care and deliver babies at a birthing center. Those midwives are now her health care providers.
2: Anyways, that was how it started. Um, and actually, when I was looking back, thinking about how to tell this story, it was sort of, I mean, it feels like kind of these waves of really strong paramount anxiety about different things. And then some like a lot of in-betweens where things were okay. And really overall, like this has been a very smooth pregnancy. There have not been any like true complications or anything. I actually am quite lucky in that way. Um, We got pregnant pretty quickly. It was my second month trying, which caused anxiety because it was so soon after my IUD was removed and I was worried that my hormone levels were still out of whack. So I was really worried about having a miscarriage. I mean, I was... I a loss for whether to tell people because, you know, on the one hand, it's like all I'm thinking about, it was hard to relate to people about anything else, and yet um, when I did tell people, my anxiety would be worse because it was like I would have to double back if I had a miscarriage and tell them. So I really kind of struggled with that, and I did end up telling a lot of people just because I'm social and I'm a sharer, and it was exciting to share it, but I really struggled a lot with that anxiety in the first month or so. And I talked to a lot of women that did have miscarriages, and that definitely amplified my anxiety. Pretty smooth pregnancy in terms of symptoms from the end of the first trimester to about 20 weeks, so like 14 to 20 weeks. Everything was really smooth. I was feeling good. Um, And then I had my 20-week ultrasound, which is standard at the birthing center just to see if there's any kind of complications that might make you a higher risk to deliver there with less medical intervention. We got to see the baby. I hadn't seen it on the ultrasound since nine weeks, so it really turned from like a tadpole into a human, which was really cool to see. Um, We found out it was a boy, and they did all these different kinds of measurements of his growth and everything like that just to flag anything that looked abnormal. But
3: then Cora got a call from one of the midwives the next day. The call started with the midwife assuring her that what she had to report was not a big deal.
2: And of course, everything else flies out of your head after that. Her
3: baby's kidneys were a bit backed up
2: which, as she said, it's common in boys. It almost always resolves itself before birth or in the few months after birth. But she wanted me to see a specialist just to kind of track it and see. You know, my mother-in-law is is a doctor, and she explained a little more that just it happens especially in boys when their urinary tract isn't developed enough yet, and so they're just more backed up with urine than they should be. Um, but as it develops more, this usually corrects itself, um, and. The worst case scenario is that it's some kind of kidney defect, but even that would be corrected with surgery when he's about a year old. Um, so, I mean, in retrospect, you know, I, I went to the specialist to have this looked at more. Obviously, I was really worried about it. You know, we looked up online. I think my husband was sending me all these things to try to reassure me. And 99% of it said, this is not a big deal. It corrects itself. And then some internet forum mentioned that it, it's a marker for Down syndrome, Otherwise, I probably would have felt okay about it and reassured by, you know, the multitude of good outcomes. But that kind of planted a seed of worry in my head. Then I went to the specialist appointment. They took another hour and a half of measurements, um, remeasuring everything that the birthing center had already measured um, and then some. So I'm there for an hour and a half. I'm already really uncomfortable from, you know, lying on my back, having this thing pressing into my belly, being anxious the whole time. And the doctor comes in. The doctor, I had, I mean, an ultrasound tech did all of the pictures. She had been talking to me throughout. The doctor looked at the pictures and came in, so, didn't even touch me this entire appointment. And he leads with, Hi. So, um, one of the things that we are looking for when we take all these measurements is any kind of indication of chromosomal abnormalities. And I had already read that this is a marker for Down syndrome, so it was the worst thing that he could have said. I think it would have been anyways. And, you know, he said, this kidney thing, it's a weak marker for Down syndrome, and I, I mean, was obviously just, like, visibly horrified. And I said, well, does he have any other markers? And the doctor goes, oh, no. And I said, well, do you think he has Down syndrome? And the doctor goes, no, but you look really anxious, so maybe you should get the test, and you, it'll come back negative, and you'll feel better. That's what he said. I, I, to, to this day, it, like, enrages me that he—I mean— You do not have to be a doctor to know that this is a terrible delivery. I mean, of course you wouldn't lead with the thing that they don't have, but that they have a very weak marker for. That's, like, everybody's fear. Um, It was just this bewildering kind of, like, backwards encounter where I was, like, reeling myself back from the edge. And he's using this anxiety that he just produced, pointing at it in my face to say, well, maybe you should just get this test that we know will come back negative.
3: I write all the time about how one medical procedure leads to another, leads to another. But this is like a verbal thing where he creates anxiety in you and then suddenly suggests, oh, have another test to ease your anxiety.
2: Right. Um, And this was a test that we had already foregone. We could have gotten it at about 10 weeks. You can find out the gender that early now um, with this chromosomal test that will also clear for any kind of um, trisomy issues. And I didn't want to get it then because there are, like, some risks of false positives, and I'd heard of people kind of going through one layer after another only for the baby to be fine, and it just – I didn't have any risks for it, so I felt like I would just rather not risk Going down that road um, and assume that everything was fine. But actually, at that point, we did get the test. And I had, we kind of had this, my husband and I had this fight at the doctor's office about it because, you know, he was like, you're going to be really anxious about this. Just find out. And it, so it just was like, I mean, it brought out the worst in both of us. It was a terrible encounter. And to top it off, he said, you know, the kidneys are an afterthought, they're not very backed up at all. Um, But We notice this abnormality with your cervix where sometimes it sort of randomly shortens. They call it a dynamic cervix. And so that could put you at risk for preterm labor. So we want to see you back in two weeks. We'll check the kidneys again and we'll check the cervix. Um, And if the cervix gets shorter, then we'll have to do an intervention. So at this point, I'm about 22 weeks along. I'm like frantically Googling, you know, what's the earliest baby that was born that lived? What are the, what are the probabilities of viability at certain, you know, 22, 23, 24 weeks? Um, I have them all memorized if you're curious. But so, you know, this is my newest wave of anxiety.
3: Please note that Cora said earlier that she really has had a very smooth pregnancy, but it's been continually punctuated by medically induced anxiety. Nothing is wrong, but it seems like a lot is occasionally and seriously wrong, at least momentarily, thanks to all these largely unnecessary tests.
2: We've been back twice since then, and the kidneys and the cervix have both completely resolved themselves, um, and I don't have to go back again. But even, I mean, the second appointment, he said, everything's normal, let's see you back in three weeks to see if it's still normal, and then we wouldn't need to see you again. So, I mean, as my midwife said, you know, OBGYNs tend to kind of see things through the lens of pathology. They're looking for abnormalities and things that they can correct. A midwifery standpoint is much more assuming that everything's going to be normal. Obviously, sometimes I guess the pathology lens would catch things that the assumption of normality lens doesn't, but in my case, it really (laughs) didn't end up being helpful. My other observation about pregnancy has been, I'm a therapist, so I do A fair amount of introspection, I think. And the strangest part of it for me, and I guess this is just really probably unique to first pregnancies, so this nine-month window of my life, but it feels very much like existing between two lives, like this sort of limbo of life states. I say a lot. I feel like my six-month-ago self – wouldn't really have been friends with my current self because I'm just like so much more of a homebody. You know, I live in Austin, Texas. The social culture is very much like happy hour and sort of casual outdoor drinking with friends. And, you know, I've kept in touch with all my friends, but my lifestyle looks different. You know, I go out to brunch now and go to bed at 9. And so I am different from the self that I was before this my body isn't entirely mine anymore. I'm in this like very unique sliver of life where it's it's hard to relate to anyone else that's not really in it. And I have been seeking out a lot of other pregnant and especially first time moms just cause it feels so nice to be able to share that. And the other aspect of that too is that I feel like my life is just like pure anticipation at this point. Like it's so future focused.
3: There's a book written by an American physician called Expecting Trouble about the uniquely American medical view of pregnancy. The doctor who wrote Expecting Trouble argues that American women are overdiagnosed and overtreated during pregnancy because the very condition of being pregnant has been pathologized in the U.S. Physicians here tend to focus on everything that can go wrong with the pregnancy rather than the overwhelming likelihood that everything will go right. So pregnant American women tend to experience unnecessary medical interventions and diagnostics that can have their own undesirable, even dangerous, side effects. He also points out that other wealthy countries have far fewer prenatal visits than we do, far fewer medical interventions during pregnancy at far less cost, and their maternal and infant outcomes are much better. This won't be the last time you hear from Lauren and Stacy and Cora. Next month's episode will be about the births of Lauren's and Stacy's daughters and the birth of Cora's son. I'm Jackie Wolfe, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the host of Lifespan. Thank you for listening to this episode. Adam Rich is our audio engineer, Harley Wentz is our audio editor, and Adam and I are Lifespan's executive
0: producers.